Hello, good afternoon everyone. Saturday, 3 p.m. Welcome to another meditation Q&A session. This is a special session that we've added to, I've added to my schedule as a support for the people who during these times are looking for some support. These times, the times of uncertainty, the times of Calamity, rogabhaya, the danger of sickness. It's one one silver lining that has come out of all this doom and despair. It's been a bit of a wake-up call for all of us as we consider our own fragility the fragility of our circumstance. As we ask ourselves the question, how to free myself from suffering? And so one thing we've seen is, I've seen, is an increase in online interest or uh, attendance of these sorts of events. At the loss, of course, of a lot of in-person attendance, in-person practice, we are doing courses at our center right now, so we're doing a lot more online at-home courses, which means it, it, it's harder to do intensive practice, because to some extent you feel a little bit un, unconfident about doing a uh, an intensive course without the presence of a teacher, with, without the support of a center. For the most part, we haven't done that, though. Recently I did... Sorry, just a second. Recently I did a course with one of my students an intensive course, and it was the first time, I think, that I've tried doing a full intensive course with someone who, remotely, someone who hadn't done one prior. So maybe that can be more of a common occurrence in the future, as we adapt and make allowances for the reality. Uh, recently, I was invited to do an online meditation se meditation session at uh, Brock University, a local university here, which was quite quite an honor. I've been asked because I'm in the area, new to the area, but now that I'm here, been asked to take the part, play the part of a Buddhist chaplain of sorts. To be the Buddhist contact for the university, and so we did a Zoom, or was it Zoom? No, we did. Mic we used Microsoft Meet, and we used some online video conferencing tool. And students came, and I taught them how to meditate. And then 
Also out of the blue, I was invited recently to lead a meditation course in New York. In New York, uh, run by the Tourism Authority of Thailand. I guess they know that I'm a monk ordained in Thailand. and They didn't know I spoke Thai, so we ended up speaking in Thai for a while. Quite surprised and to someone who had been following, the person working at this place had been following my videos for five years. And I uh, said they were, they thought they were useful. And so. so where I'm going with this is that this might be a, a trend. And what I was thinking about when I thought to talk about this was maybe there are other people out there who have something. Maybe we can, we can extend the reverse invitation I guess <laughs> leave ourselves open to invitation if anyone has something going on in their area because it's easy you know I've been at, I've been invited places to give a talk here give a talk there across the world well in North America usually in America different places in America and I often turn it down because it doesn't seem worth all the travel and the hassle when I could just stay here and keep working um, but, but there's much less hassle involved with you know giving a talk over the internet is a pretty easy thing to do so it's kind of a silver lining that we've now people have now accepted the, this and are interested in this I don't know that it would be so popular an online meditation session uh, before before it was forced upon us, but now it's kind of the something people are looking for, interested in. So if you're such a person who has a group of people, maybe get in touch with us and we can work something out. I don't see why it would be a problem. Who knows, it might just help someone. But back to today's session, we're here. Uh, in a minute, I'm going, in a moment, I'm going to ask Chris to take on the role of invigilator. And we'll ask that there be no conversation in chat after that time. That chat be used solely for asking questions until the end of the session where I say, okay, you can talk again. In the meantime, either ask questions or close your eyes and meditate with us. Questions will be sorted into tiers. Chris has a, he's got it all written down, I think. He's got a tier system. Top tier are questions that really need answers for the person relating to their meditation practice. Next tier are questions about meditation, just in general, I think something like that and and lower tier are questions about Buddhism and then the really low tier that we may never get to are questions about other things speculative questions questions that start with I wonder I'm curious those are those are probably low low tier all right I'm ready and you are Chris Okay, let's begin. What is the first thing a beginner should do to start taming the mind? It's a good question. That's really it, right? That's what you want to know. You come to a place like this, you want to know. But um, there's there's two sides to this. It's not one thing, really. I want to say mindfulness, I want to say read my booklet, <laughs> give you some ideas. In fact, that's probably a good idea because the, the booklet outlines both sides. But the other side is ethics. And it would be remiss to to leave that out. You have to be an ethical sort of person before you take up the practice. A third thing might be right view. So on a very basic level, what that means is that you can't just say, I'm going to go sit down and become enlightened, not like the Buddha did. 
He was a very special, very, very special person. It's not going to work unless you're a Buddha or like ready to become a Buddha. You need some kind of guidance, some kind of right view. What's proper uh, direction? What's the goal even? Often people sit down to meditate without any clear idea of what the goal is or a wrong idea of what the goal is. Maybe a limited idea of what the goal is, like it's just to calm me down. Something, even if you just say to tame the mind, what does that even mean? It could mean many different things to different people. So unless you have some guidance from uh, that comes uh, comes originally from a, a Buddha, you're going to get that wrong, even if you say taming the mind. Because it looks different. To, it, people are often... We have a lack of imagination. We're unable to imagine or to envision exactly how far it goes, exactly how tame the mind can become. So we fall short usually, or even just get on the wrong track. So let's say those three things, and the two that come first are right view and ethics. Be an ethical person, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, don't take drugs or alcohol. Try your best to limit things like entertainment and diversion. Try your best to limit food. Not means don't eat, but just eat enough. Don't eat too much. Don't pig out on food or be always thinking about food. Don't sleep too much. Don't get too comfortable and that sort of thing. Lots of things that surround things you shouldn't do because they're problematic for practice. And then start the third thing, which is practice. Once you understand how to practice and the right way to practice, or a right way, there are multiple techniques, but if you're interested in our way, we've got a booklet you can read. It'll give you some idea on how to practice. I daydream a lot off the cushion. Why is it important to be mindful at all times throughout the day? The goal is to create perfect clarity of mind, where you're really seeing things as they are. You might not realize how far we normally are from that, but in order to get there, you need to build a supportive foundation, kind of, meaning lots and lots of moments of mindfulness that support that final moment where you're perfect you have perfect clarity and if you that when you take breaks from being mindful your foundation starts to crumble and you have to build it up again or you, you lose your faculties become imbalanced you, you your habits start to uh, degrade bad habits are increased so you have to reconstruct the whole foundation of your mind and build it up in the right way to support that that moment. It's like um, rubbing two sticks together. You have to keep rubbing them together or you'll lose the heat. If you stop and take a break, if you want to boil a kettle of water, you have to turn on the heat and you have to keep the heat on. That kind of thing. But, but most clearly it's just the, the habits of the mind you have to change and you have to develop and you have to direct your habits of mind in the right way. And any moment where you're not doing that, even when you sleep, those are moments lost, momentum lost. You need that momentum. That's why we're mindful throughout the day. How do I control my worrying? How can I note when things get on top of me? Well, with ev as with everything, don't try to control. Don't think of it as controlling your worrying. When things get on top of you, kind of step 
step outside of yourself for a bit because they don't actually get on top of you, that's just a perception. Any moment where you realize that there's worry is a moment when you can change your perspective of things, kind of step outside of yourself. And rather it's I'm wor rather it being I'm worrying, worry has consumed me. You look at it as worry has arisen, and you observe it just as worried, worried. If you haven't read our booklet on how to meditate, I recommend considering to do that. It might help you. If you're interested further, you could do a meditation course in our tradition. Yeah, you might as well just put that one up all the time. I'm, I'm probably going to talk about both when I do. Okay. So those are the two links that Chris has just put up. And they're in the description to the video, which is probably easier anyway. You can just go to our main website, which is always at the bottom of the screen. It should have links to everything. How to be aware and how to know the desire to be liked and the fear of being ridiculed. It seems I am operated by that while around many people, and it seems others are as well. Well, simply for what it is, wanting and afraid. But important is to recognize that it's not easy when we're deep in the thick of it. It's much, much too easy to just forget yourself and get caught up. So this is why we do training, sitting on a mat, walking back and forth. We're trying to build up the skill. Try your best to stay away from people. This is why seclusion is so good for meditation. But when you have to be around people, be vigilant. Vigilant doesn't mean you have to be freaked out all the time or, or paranoid all the time. It's quite the opposite. Take it as a... As a a meditation exercise. This is a time to be mindful. It's, it's incredibly important because you're going to regret it if you're not mindful. You'll think back and be upset about the things you said and did unmindfully. Previously when meditating, I felt quite intense nausea, which is incredibly distracting. Is there anything I can do to help with this? That is a an uncommon but, um, I don't know how to say it, common but uncommon. It's not like everyone's going to experience it, but there is a certain percentage of meditators who experience that um, when they meditate. Some people actually throw up when they start a meditation course. It's not everyone, but it is but you're not alone. It is something that some people I don't know I my guess is it's something physical. Some well, pseudo physical, probably a relationship, physical and mental. Just something. It's not a problem. It's not something to be concerned with. Something that's incredibly, there's nothing that should ever be incredibly distracting. It should be taken as the object of meditation. When you feel nauseous, just say nauseous, nauseous, or even feeling, feeling. And note the disliking of it, or worry, or fear, or frustration, or irritation, or annoyance, whatever is any emotions related to it. Don't try and fix it. Don't try and change it. Don't look for help. Don't try and help it to become different. You have to become resigned to the fact that it's there you have to learn to let go of it not cling to it not make more of it than it is what it is all it is is an experience nothing special nothing out of the ordinary there is no ordinary what is 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 what is is and that's it
can walking and sitting be alternated multiple times in a session? Sure. One session is considered walking and sitting half and half. But after sitting, if you want to just get up and do another session, that's fine. If you're just doing short walking and sitting, I would consider that to be a little bit um, escapist often, depending on why, but, but it's probably not for the best. We usually try to do maximum one hour walking, one hour sitting. If that's too much, you can cut it down to half hour walking, half hour sitting. Sorry, an hour, one hour walking, one hour sitting is pretty hard unless you're doing intensive practice for a long time. So something like half hour walking, half hour sitting. But if you're doing shorter than that, maybe consider working up to half, half, half hour, half hour. Like instead of doing 15, 15, and then 15, 15, try and do half hour, half hour. So don't do really short walking, sitting, walking, sitting. Unless you have some problem that stops you from sitting for long periods of time or walking for long periods of time. There's lots of exceptions. Just make sure you're not avoiding pain or avoiding hardship or avoiding boredom or that sort of thing. We're not about avoiding here. We're about facing. It's hard to face if you keep changing. I'm doing Vipassana for almost a year now. And lately I experience my thoughts a bit different, like I'm seeing them instead of making them, if that makes sense. Should I note seeing or still thinking? I would note thinking. If you want, you could, if you feel like it's, it's not quite accurate, you could say thought, thought. But it's fine to just keep saying thinking. Seeing is a bit misleading because... Seeing is what we say when we actually visually see something. But I get what you're saying. I mean, that's sort of what you should start to experience, that thoughts are not me or not mine. But that's that doesn't mean you don't say thinking, thinking. There's still an experience of thinking. Not that I am thinking, but that there is thinking. And it is still you thinking, just practically speaking. It's not me thinking when that happens. It's you thinking. It's just not you, you, like you doing the... the active thinking still in you it's not in someone else so it's just keep saying thinking is fine don't get too technical how best to deal with stress and anxiety while meditating So I have done videos on stress and anxiety, anxiety in particular. And first of all, I'd say if you haven't read the booklet, read that just in case you're coming from a position of not knowing how to meditate because it does deal with, we do talk about things like anxiety. But specifically for anxiety, uh, you have to recognize that it's more than simply the feeling of being anxious. There's more to the experience than that. There's a lot of physical sensations. And you should note them separately from the anxiety, not as anxious, anxious, but you should note them as feeling or tense or uh, whatever the feel whatever the feeling might be. Uh, there's also thoughts. So if you're thinking about something that makes you anxious, you should note the thoughts independent of the anxiety. Say thinking, thinking. If you can break it down into its parts, you find it's a lot less scary and overwhelming than just thinking that you're having a panic attack or something like that. But if you haven't read the booklet, I recommend that. It's in the description. I find thinking rising and falling useful in the beginning of my meditation, but unnecessary after some time. Can I meditate without the words? How would you know what is unnecessary? I ask that because unnecessary for what? And my suspicion is unnecessary for some state of calm, perhaps. And, and that's not the goal of the practice. Rising, noting is, is, is necessary, 
It's a necessary tool used to achieve some very specific results that I assume you haven't attained. Um, I mean, if you have attained them, then if that's were what you were, were talking about, then yeah, you'd, but you wouldn't be meditating at that point. You would be in cessation. They become unnecessary when you attain cessation. If you haven't attained cessation, then it's meaningless to say whether they're necessary or unnecessary because they haven't done their job yet. So if you feel calm, you should not calm. Calm if you feel quiet. You should say whatever it is you you think you're attaining or achieving without the noting. You should note that. If you feel quiet or or calm, usually would be what people would experience. You can if you want, but I wouldn't recommend it. It's not how I teach. Some other teachers probably do. If you're interested, you could undertake an, an at-home meditation course to get some idea of how far we're going. Still won't get you all the way, most likely, but it's a good start. You'll see that there's actually a lot more than just the rising and falling. We have, If you're interested, I recommend considering to do an at-home course. It's free. You can sign up for it on our website. Are you against mantra, or is noting acting as a mantra? I believe it's acting as a mantra. I believe that's exactly the... Um, spirit in which it was taught it's an exact uh, parallel to other mantra meditation that we have in Buddhism uh, a lot of people in Thailand have heard of, of mantra meditation they, they don't use that word in Thai but no, they don't use it for this they use the word mon, mon which means mantra uh, but they use it in a different context uh, but they do use mantra meditation for like they'll, they'll say the word the name of the Buddha, Buddho, Buddho, and they'll just repeat that. Or there's other uh, traditions that do Samma Arahang, which is basically Buddho. It's the same thing. If you look in the ancient texts, there's Patavi, Patavi, which means earth, earth. That's the example they give. You just focus on the earth element. That's just tranquility meditation. And all that, I mean, what is it if not med mantra meditation? And so noting, rising, falling, there's no difference there. The difference, and the very important difference, is the object. The object rising and falling. Rising is impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. It's not self, it's not, it's not happiness, it's not satisfying. It's inconstant, it's unpredictable. Whereas any conceptual object appears to be the opposite and it can be manipulated and controlled. It satisfies, it's peaceful and calm and pleasant and it lasts. And so it doesn't teach you about reality, which is none of those things. It's conceptual. That's the difference. But mantra meditation, that's basically what we do as well. Mantra is just a good tool to focus the mind, that's it. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. It's just a very, very good established, accredited, well-appreciated, uh, well ancient meditation technique. There's nothing radical or new or uh, strange or, or unique about what we call what people call the noting technique. See, it's misleading. It's not the noting technique. It's mantra meditation. It's, it's a very well-established meditation technique. It's just most people use it with one particular word focused on a concept, so it's unrecognizable because it's not that, and because the object changes, and because it's not very peaceful, at least in the beginning. I tend to note too many things very quickly. Should I slow down the noting and take time with each noting to better see or understand what's happening? Try and note things until they go away. That might slow you down. Try to note not more than one thing per second. 
It's not not exact, but that's a good idea of how quick it should be. If there's lots of different things, try to just note distracted, distracted, or even overwhelmed, overwhelmed. Don't note too quickly. Just try and repeat it on a regular basis. Pain, pain, pain. Don't note too quickly. But we're no, we're, it's not about better seeing or better understanding. That will come by itself. You're not trying to create that. Just try and remind yourself. That's your job. Remind yourself like a mantra, almost. And the only difference with how we normally think of a mantra maybe is it's not something you just say in your head. It's something that's related to the object. So every time you actually experience the object with your mind at the object, note, note it then. Can I stay mindful and uphold the practice during martial arts training? Yeah, sure. I think martial arts is okay. It's a good question as to why you're doing martial arts, but there could be many reasons. Even self-defense, I don't think, is an evil reason. I mean, Buddhists tend to be, we tend to be pretty restricted in what we approve of. So I wouldn't say I approve of martial arts, but in a practical worldly sense, it doesn't seem like a problem, even just for health. Uh, I would say in the long term, a, a really serious meditator would probably give it up along with everything else, but related to lots of, in, in comparison to a lot of other things you could be doing, it's pretty innocuous in my mind, and somewhat meditative, and perhaps a good opportunity to be mindful. Even people who practice sports potentially could be like runner, runners or cyclists. People who practice yoga. Lots of different things you can people do. Tai Chi, you can do it mindfully. I'd say in the long term, really serious, as again, serious meditators probably give it up. Well, that's because they just give up most things. Why is it appropriate to note concepts like stepping left and stepping right? Shouldn't we only note the experiences of the six senses? It is an experience of the six senses. It's a physical experience, the feeling in the body. The Buddha used such words. He said, gachanto va gachamiti pajanati. He said, going and sitting. Right? Now, left and right are pretty conceptual but it's useful it's a useful concept the point of saying left and right is in it for to help a beginner meditator bring their attention to the proper foot when you say left and right it helps you distinguish it helps bring the mind not to that foot but to that foot so it's useful in the beginning now we don't use it later on if you're interested you could do an at-home meditation course and you'd quickly discard that and uh, for, for in favor of something a little more accurate but names are always conceptual, and that's not a problem. It's not a problem to say stepping, right? Stepping, stepping, walking, walking, it's all the same. Because the point is, it's referring to something that's really happening. That's all. And that's a physical, that's the, the fifth sense, the physical sense. The feelings of the three elements, earth, air, and water. Oh, sorry, earth, fire, water, earth. Water, no. Earth, air, fire, not water. See a lot of deleted messages. At this point, the only thing in the chat should be questions about your practice. Please, if you're engaging in conversation instead, I encourage you to close your eyes and focus on your own experience. It's only, the chat is only for people on the off chance that they have a question.
When I try to sleep mindfully, I find that I cannot get to sleep even into two or three hours of lying completely still. How can I overcome this? It's not actually a problem. It can be if you have to work, but I think in the beginning it might be a problem. Um, we sleep a lot. We can tend to sleep a lot. And not only that, but our schedules, our, our mental rhythms, I guess, are often out of whack. And it takes some time to, they're out of order. And so it takes some time to put them back in order. Mindfulness should really help you sleep and help your sleep be positive, be beneficial, quiet, undisturbed. But generally less, you'll sleep a little less. You will, you can find, as I, as I, when I said it's not really a problem, because you can find that staying up all night mindfully is... I don't know if you could say it's as beneficial as sleep, but you don't really miss the sleep as much as you would if you were upset or freaking out or wanting to get to sleep. On top of that, I might suggest you look into whether you're trying to go to sleep, wanting to go to sleep, in which case you should note that as well, because that will, of course, hinder your ability to sleep, and so... You might be missing that, thinking, I'll do mindful meditation and it'll help me sleep, and then kind of getting uh, getting agitated when it's not working that way. So make sure you're noting all things, including your desire to fall asleep, your worry about the fact that you're not sleeping, etc. How to note sitting or standing? Should we try to feel the whole body? And just ask yourself. You can to figure it out. You can just ask yourself what posture you're in. Are you sitting right now? And when you're aware that you're sitting, then you would note sitting. And that's all it takes. So if someone asks you, "Are you sitting?" and you say right away, "Yes," you've already done what needs to be done. You already took a look very quickly at your body and knew that you were sitting, and that's all it takes. You will find in practice when you're repeating it, repeating it, that each time it's different and sometimes it's not clear for a while that you're actually sitting and that's fine. That's what the idea is. That's the idea of the practice to show you the impermanence and the lack of control. You can't even do something simple like figure out whether you're sitting or not. It helps to create flexibility. It helps to decrease clinging and control. The idea that we're somehow in charge, that we can control our minds to do whatever we want. When I go outside for a walk, how and what should I note or focus on? The most basic object when you're not doing formal meditation is the body and the four postures of the body specifically. So walking is one of those four postures. When you're walking, you'd say to yourself, walking, walking, or right, left. And then apart from that, when there's any pr prominent object, you just note it. The senses are a good one, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Many emotions that come up. feelings of pain or pleasure, etc. I have noticed the sense of meaninglessness becoming very prevalent in daily life. I also have no more interest in socializing or doing anything fun. I don't enjoy life as I used to. Is this progress? Well, it's change. What we can say for sure is that you're different from before by your own words, by your own observation. But um, that's not to say that everything about the change is good or useful. I can't say that. And that's because it's complicated. You might be developing bad habits at the same time that have made you uh, averse towards things that you used to be okay with. 
like maybe you were okay in social situations and now people make you angry and annoyed. That comes often to meditators in the beginning, I think, until they learn to not let the their new appreciation of the negative side of all of their attachments get get the better of them. It can overwhelm you and you become not only frustrated and angry, but also conceited and arrogant. Huh, these people are all engaging in useless things. I'm a meditator. I'm better than them. That's a bad habit you've developed. So I, I would caution against seeing it as wholly one or the other. There's most likely something very good there that's making you less susceptible to uh, getting caught up in things that are only going to disappoint you and, and may cause suffering for you. But there, you have to always be vigilant and, and open to the fact that you might be doing something wrong. That's just a generally good uh, quality of mind to be aware that you might be doing something wrong. Not to be always doubting yourself, but never to be too sure of yourself either. Often, often you see meditators so sure of themselves. I'm this, I'm that, I'm... Look at me, this is, I, I really know what I'm doing. And that's so easy to... to uh, cause you to overlook things that you you really need to pay more attention to. You dismiss things, you may start making excuses for yourself and so on, rather than actually acknowledge the existence of problematic states. So always be objective. It's really in your better interest not to worry so much about progress and whether you're getting better, because it's usually more complicated than that. And always, always, always just focus on how it is. Not, this is the right way to be, this is the wrong way to be, this is the way I be right now, this is the way I am right now. Take it as from that perspective and just continue to use the practice on absolutely everything good and bad. When you do that, you don't ever have to worry about whether you're going in the right direction. Because the quality of mind is good, is positive, is pure. How to stay mindful while missing a partner overseas? Do I let go of desire entirely? And if so, will that not result in the end of the relationship? Yes, yes, it very well might. I mean, romantic relationships don't actually survive the, the practice because they're not actually beneficial, wholesome, good. And that's an unfortunate truth. They're not actually a cause of satisfaction. They're not actually a cause of peace and... and happiness. I think for most people that's a long way off. It's even even a sotapanna, even someone who has seen nirvana can very easily get caught up in romance. They tend to know that it's just their own lack of willpower. A sotapanna is aware of the fact that worldly things can't really satisfy you, but they just have craving remaining and because they can't deal with it, they they indulge in it. And so that's normal. It's not evil. It's just something that is uh, remaining. So I think you're going to find your, your romantic relationships changing. You're less tolerant for things that are unsatisfying in the sense, not not that you get upset by them, but you just, you're unable to pretend that a bad relationship, and bad just means an unsatisfying and un, uh, unpleasant relationship. You're unable to justify it because you're seeing clearly. So bad relationships that are abusive or so on, you just start to wise up and say, there's really not the reason I thought there was for staying in this relationship. But I would imagine long-distance relationships uh, fall prey to a similar... It's funny to say fall prey. They, they succumb to a, a similar wisdom. They succumb to a similar truth. That they're just not beneficial. There's just... And remembering that ultimately there is no benefit from romance whatsoever. So 
It's just you starting to see that the more glaring instances, me desiring this. It's hard to say. It's it's hard. It's not hard to say. It's hard to to swallow what I'm saying. What, what, you know this this idea because. And I have to make this point. We're taught something that's so very wrong. We're taught, and it's ingrained in us, how satisfying true love is, how 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 great it is. We're we're taught by our romance movies and novels and stories. We're taught by our friends. We're taught by our own experiences. Maybe not experiences, but by the culture and by what we're told about our experiences or what we tell ourselves. I love this person. What does that even mean, right? It's so complicated. This is the one, this person is the one for me. This is my partner, which is which is really ego, right? Mine, me, mine. Ultimately, ultimately it can't it can't withstand the test of truth. And you'll, so in the beginning, you're going to find the more glaring instances of where this is clearly true, that this isn't satisfying or meaningful in any way. It's hard often because there is something meaningful in the friendship, in the, the kindness, the, the caring, the consideration that we have for each other, the support, the help. There's a lot of goodness, but it's masked behind the romance. It's not the romance itself. And if we gave up the romance, if we were ever able, when we're able to give up romance, we find we've opened ourselves up to so much more goodness as we apply the same goodness to all beings, to, to, to multiple people, to whoever, not discriminating. People who love their families, who love their spouses, often limit themselves, limit the goodness they'll do to only those people who they quote-unquote love, my loved ones. Well, why can't we just love everyone in, in, in the good way? Why can't all the good things that we do for our loved ones, why can't we apply that to everyone? That would make the world a different place. When moving the mind to the rising and falling of the stomach, is this a conceptual placement, a thought in the mind, or should this be a formless experience? It's kind of conceptual. The mind doesn't actually move, per se. It, it arises. It's more technically accurate to say it arises in the stomach. But the way it feels, it should be. It's a little bit of a mental, formless experience. It feels like the mind is moving because, oh, it was here before, now it's there. So it feels like it moved to the rising. That's just how it feels. In reality, it's arising in the in the physical phenomena or in, in conjunction with the physical phenomena. But I wouldn't think too much about it. The point of saying that it should be moved to the rising and falling is, or to any object is so that you don't just say it in your head rising, falling, without even knowing that the stomach is rising and falling. That's all that means. I used an alarm clock when doing sitting meditation for one hour. Is it better doing it with or without an alarm clock? So the biggest reason for using a timer is because we do walking as well and we try to balance walking and sitting. But another reason is to avoid giving in to your whims. Uh, I want to stop now. Usually there's a, usually it's a bad re, bad it's a negative cause, something you don't like or something you'd rather be doing. And it's very good to face that. And if you use a timer it means an external source of of, um, of a signal of when to stop. When you just use your own internal signals, they're usually caused by partiality. So I would say those two reasons together make using a timer quite valuable.
This may be similar to one that's been answered already. Do the words rise, fall, matter? Can I just pay attention to the breath without saying any words in my head? So the words help to change the way you look at the object. They're a concrete uh, affirmation. They're a mantra. And we're, we're, most people don't have any sense of or any clear understanding of why a mantra is so useful. They just kind of get intuitively how it's useful. But it's the use of, of reminding yourself. That's what the word sati really means. It means to remind or to remember. To remember yourself. Cause yourself to remember. Remembering. So the word is a very powerful tool. If you just pay attention without saying it, you're much more likely to just continue thinking of it the way you normally think of it, without any new clarity. When I meditate and concentrate on the breath, thoughts come into my mind. Is it best to say thinking or distracted? Sorry, someone's mowing a lawn right outside. I don't know if y'all can hear that. Hope it's not too distracting. So if it's just a thought, a stray thought, you would say thinking. If it's a lot of thoughts or something that's very much outside of what you're doing, then you would know distracted, distracted. Not distracting exactly, but that you're distracted. I did at-home meditation about six months ago with you and keeping up with my daily practice. Could you offer a review at home course? I feel like that can be helpful for my practice. No, I don't offer that. It seems like it's a little too much. The next, Your next challenge is to be able to create similar results on your own, which is a challenge, I admit. But a review course would make things easier for you, and that, as I've said, it's not usually uh, a good thing. Much better to be challenged. Now, the next course I could offer is to do a in-person intensive course. I mean, as I said, we even did it with someone who hadn't... We, we did it... Uh, I did it remotely with someone. But I feel like that's only for special instances where you've done some intensive course on your own and other traditions maybe, where we can be clear that you're going to be okay doing intensive course on your own. And if you really think you are... We can talk about it and we can do an intensive course at home. Because the, the, the at-home course that we offer is really mostly just to learn the technique. So And to hand-hold the person through that. So if all you need is more hand-holding, I would suggest trying to cultivate it on your own for now. I tried to read your booklet, but my disorder made it very difficult to finish. Is there an audio version? And if not, I'd be very happy if you made one. So someone's making one. I started making one and it got all corrupted. and So I stopped. But I think someone might be... There's talk of making one. But that being said, you know, try to use the, the practice to deal with your disorder. Don't just be content with reading and learning the concepts. Try and use the concepts that are in it. Try and understand, penetrate to the meaning of the words and actually apply it. I 
I am a very busy person with my job. Is there any way I can implement meditation during the time I am working without interfering too much with my job? Yeah, it de uh, depends what kind of work you're doing. You know, if you're very busy mentally, it might be challenging, but you can take breaks. And on your breaks, you can do meditation. You can also note every so often things that are distracting you or emotions, frustration, boredom, etc. And read the booklet. I assumed you, it sounds like you might have read the booklet. If you haven't, I recommend reading it. You can see how it's potentially applicable in daily life. How can I meditate without needing to obtain my desire in the future by being mindful and aware it can lead to disappointment? Yeah, I think all I have to say is read the booklet. I don't think there's anything specific there that's outside of the instruction. So, I mean, we have to you have to focus less on what you think you need to learn from the meditation. This is a common problem from people who have read or learned about Buddhism. They'll often try and figure out What's the word? An, an end run around? Is that the term? You try to skirt around the, the, the problem. You can't make an end run, if I'm using that word correctly. You have to just go through it and focus more on the practice than on what you think you're supposed to be getting out of it. So it's not about being mindful and aware that something might lead to disappointment. It's about just being mindful and aware of things. You aren't mindful and aware of things leading, being leading to disappointment. You're mindful and aware, and as a result of that, which you actually might be saying, the grammar here is not clear, but as a result of being mindful, you become aware, and you start to become more and more clearly aware that it leads to disappointment. Is it okay to undertake actions resulting from craving, for example, sex, or do we have to suppress always? Depends what you mean by okay, really. What, what, there's no suppression. There's a reaction where you decide to take a certain action. And if you're not, if that action is not to engage in the thing you want, there's going to be there's going to be consequences. There's going to be withdrawal from your desire. That's not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing if you don't deal with the negative states and you get angry and upset and frustrated, disappointed by them, which is common. So simply telling yourself I'm not going to engage in it can be unhealthy simply because you're not dealing with the fallout. You don't have healthy ways of dealing with the results, the consequences of not engaging with the thing that you want to engage in, that your brain craves generally. There's no, there's no, that's not suppression. That's just dealing with the with withdrawal. And we we tend to not deal very well with withdrawal. So you have to be prepared to deal with that. So generally, the answer is well, how serious are you about the practice? more serious you are, the less okay it becomes to undertake actions resulting from craving. It's not going to send you to hell if you engage in sensual pleasure, but it's going to get in the way of your practice. That's not quite a meditation question, so I'm guessing we've run out of meditation questions. And if not, uh, well, because it's four o'clock, and so if we have, that's it. If there are any left, Please go ahead. One is just say, Okay, so that's it. Then that last one will be it. And then that's it. You can all start talking and chat again. Say hello, say sadhu, say 
say what you will mindfully. How to focus on the body when meditating, because always my mind goes somewhere else. Focus on that. I don't know if you've read the booklet. Sounds like you may not have. So I'd recommend reading the booklet if you're really interested in taking the at-home course because we have specific advice on how to... Uh, how to... what? Maintain mindfulness even when something comes that takes you away from the thing you were paying attention to. Everything can be an object of mindfulness, so just note the thing that you experience. Now the top tier is finished, Monte. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you all. Good questions. Wow, we broke 100 people today. We have 102 viewers. That's great. Thank you all for coming out. Sadhu. It is good. It was good. Have a good day, everyone.